Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hi, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Hope you're doing okay, fighting the good fight, keeping it real, Black Lives Matter. Nice to have you here. Uh, If you are new to this podcast, welcome. Super awesome to have you listening and hope you enjoy what you're about to hear. And if you like what you hear, you can subscribe by going to any podcast platform, hitting the subscribe button, rate, review. You can also check out all 72-ish episodes at my website, cindyhouse.net. Okay, uh, let's get into Issa Burke. Issa Burke of the Americana folk trio Lula Wiles is an opinionated white lady in America, and I literally cannot get enough of her. The Maine native rebelled at a young age. I think she was under 10 years old. Uh, She was rebelling against her parents' folky disposition and devoured as much rock and roll as she could find. Eventually, her parents convinced her to attend Maine Fiddle Camp, where they attended as performers and teachers to campers of all ages. We're talking from babies to grandparents. And what do you know? Issa loved the hell out of Fiddle Camp and met some important friends while she was there, namely Eleanor Bucklin and Molly Obamsuin, who years later came to form the trio Lula Wiles. Camp was also the first place that Issa saw young people taking on the folk tradition in a modern way. This excited her to no end, thus beginning a lifelong affair with traditional music. In our conversation, Issa talks about the lessons she learned at Maine Fiddle Camp and how they are reflected in her musicality and in her band. It also rooted her in a love of playing music for the sake of feeling good versus playing to sell a lot of records. We get into her lead guitar playing, and I gotta say my favorite part of this interview, and maybe any interview really, are Issa's candid comments about body image issues. She, a while ago, introduced me to the idea of body neutrality and talks about working to cultivate that and the struggle that comes along with trying to figure out how to feel about your body. Like I said, can't get enough of her, love her, would recommend talking to her for an hour at least. Okay, we're going to listen to a song from Lula Wiles. This actually is one of Issa's songs. It's called Shaking As It Turns. And then we'll get to our conversation with Issa Burke of Lula Wiles on Basic Book. And the fists they fly in the heat of the night. I touch the falling sky. It's a story as old as the flag in the yard. The money's too tight and the work's too hard. Baby, do you know just who your enemies are? Your parents, Susie Burke, and how do you say your dad's last name? Surrett. David Surrett. You have performing parents who started mm-hmm. playing together in the mid-80s in yeah. Maine, which is where you grew up. So your mom is mainly the singer and mm-hmm. guitarist, and your yep. dad 
also plays along on guitar, mandolin, etc. What do you know about how they met and what their connection was like at first? Oh, great question. Um, so they met at a bar in Portsmouth, New Hampshire called The Press Room, um, which is still around, still hosting live music. I mean, obviously not currently hosting live music, but uh, in the non-pandemic sense, they're still around and still at it. Um, yeah, they met there. Um, she was playing a gig and he was like, whoa, who is that? And then he went up and talked to her and was like, hey, do you need a mandolin player? And she was like, who is this guy? Uh, and then they started playing music together. And then a few years after that, I arrived on the scene. That's awesome. Do you know how yeah. old they were when they met? She was in her early 30s and he was in his early mid 20s. Awesome. So they're about they're about 10 years apart, okay. which is Great. cool. Totally cool. Um, your dad, I saw, compiled a book of Breton dance tunes from Brittany, which I like. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to pretend I know what I'm talking about, but it sounds yeah. like that's the Celtic region of France. True. Um, what is the story behind that book and his interest in that kind of fiddle music? And then how do you think putting together something like that affected his musicianship? That's a cool question. Um, so my dad... So the name Surrette is, um, it comes from Nova Scotia, um, via France. It doesn't obviously originally come from Nova Scotia, but, um, his family is, uh, French Canadian. And so I think through that, he kind of got really interested in French Canadian traditional music and then eventually in, uh, French traditional music. And he was already really into Celtic music, like particularly Irish music. Um, and we have some Irish heritage in our family as well. So I think uh, kind of being able to bring all of that together by studying the music of the Celtic region of France um, was a cool, a cool thing for him to discover. Um, and he's been to, he's been to Brittany um, at least once. I don't know if uh, it was more than once, but I think at some point uh, a long time ago, he got a grant to go study that music in, in Brittany. Within, like, the Celtic traditional music scene, I think Breton music is a little bit less popular or lesser known. Um, and so I think he's been uh, really into, like, being an advocate for that for mm -hmm. that music. Yeah, I found, like, the first few pages of it on mm -hmm. Google somewhere, and it said that cool. you... I, like, knew it was your dad because it said, you know, drawing on page two by Issa Burke. And it connected the nice. dots. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's... I have a, I have a little side gig of just designing the covers for my dad's tune books. <laughs> <laughs> Does he have a lot? There's only two that I've done the design for. He just released a new one recently, which is French and Italian tunes um, that he's notated for mandolin and fiddle. And I designed the cover for that. Um, so but... does he just like find these traditional songs and then writes out the music? Yeah, he'll like, he'll transcribe them. And um, for this new one, he wrote out like the tablature specifically for mandolin. Um, and he's he's notated stuff specifically for guitar, too. A lot of people find tablature easier to read if you play a fretted instrument. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Can you talk about what parts of each of your parents' musical styles have influenced your playing the most? Which is like not a big question at all, but go ahead. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think both of both of my parents have been really influential on me as a musician. Um, one of the big things that I took from both of them um, is kind of more big picture than, you know, just my specific styles of playing or singing. But they just really raised me in in community in in the folk and traditional music community. And so I think I had a really I had a really clear understanding of what that was all about from a very young age. And I didn't even really like appreciate it fully until I was like a teenager. Um, when I started meeting more young people who were playing traditional music mm. um, and specifically hearing bands like Crooked Still that were kind of making traditional music sound like hip and young and fresh. But I think that, you know, when I went to Berkeley, I went to Berkeley College of Music um, when I got there, I started seeing all these people who wanted to be professional musicians and they wanted to, like, be really famous and make a lot of money. And I kind of realized that, like, 
I was sort of unique in that I had this understanding of a music as a vehicle for building community and like playing music just for the experience of playing together, not for performing or making money. Um, and then I also had a sense of like, oh, it's totally possible to have a music career that is like sustainable and can sustain you. Um, and you're not famous at all. You, you know, you don't have a manager, you don't have a booking agent. You know, my parents have been a total mom and pop shop for a long time and they you know they sent two kids to college on that like we, we didn't grow up with a ton of money but I never I was never in like dire need I always had you know I always had everything I needed and so I you know I knew that they could do that and I saw so many people in their community who were able to do that and I feel like that gave me a really um a really good grounding that set me up well for you know what came later this is something that I think we're going to talk about um, a couple of times during this interview. Um, you have said that you rejected folk music, like you liked it, but you rejected the notion of that, like, I'm, I don't belong in this world. I, I'm not a part of that because I only see older yeah. people playing it. Yeah. So it, it was, it's funny to think like you kind of had like a reverse rebellion, like you were rebellious, yeah. like before you were 10, but you were into like rock music. When, mm -hmm. when you were younger, like you wanted to play yeah. rock and roll. I just want to say for the record that you used to play trumpet in school band. True. Um, and when you were People 10, forget. <laughs> yeah, let's take a moment to leave space for the trumpet. Uh -huh. When you were 10, your parents gave you a red, bright red electric guitar. I'm just wondering like what it was like when you got that guitar and if it changed your relationship with your parents. Like did you view them any differently after that like oh these people understand me they support me yeah, yeah. or not <laughs> yeah I mean I think yeah so they got me the electric guitar literally I can point to two very specific things that made me want to play the electric guitar one was the movie School of Rock starring Jack Black and <laughs> uh the other was the movie Freaky Friday starring Lindsay Lohan in which her character is in a band uh and plays the guitar there's a scene at the end where she plays a song at her mom's wedding. Uh, and that was formative. And so, yeah, they they were down. They got me they got me the electric guitar. And my dad started, you know, he would he would teach me like Beatles riffs. Um, I remember learning the riff from Day Tripper. That was like one of our early <laughs> guitar lessons. And I think my parents did a really good job with both me and my sister of like encouraging us to be musical, but not like not ever forcing or pressuring us. They just really kind of immersed us in in music and sort of let us kind of take the lead. And then there were times when they were like, no, like you really should practice because you decided you wanted to learn this. <laughs> um, and you, you agreed to do this. And part of that means like working hard on it. But I think they, they managed to hit a really good balance. Yeah, so I, I went nuts for the electric guitar. I remember I played the song What I Like About You in the fifth grade talent show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, at a certain point, I went to Maine Fiddle Camp and met, you know, some young hip folkies. And I was like, yo, folk music is cool now. <laughs> and then at a certain point, I circled back to the electric guitar. And now I feel like it's all, you know, it's all coming together. Totally. So you say that singing with other humans is one of the greatest possible joys in all of human life. And your sister, Juliana, True. also sings. Does she play? Mm -hmm. She Yeah, what she plays a few different instruments. She's not a professional musician. Um, she knew pretty early on that that wasn't really what she wanted, but she's an amazing musician. Um, she's played... She's kind of dabbled in a lot of instruments over the years. She played fiddle. She actually played fiddle before I did. Acoustic guitar, electric bass. Uh, I gave her a couple clawhammer banjo lessons a couple of years ago, and she picked it up, like, insanely fast. Um, so she's becoming pretty good on the banjo. But she's mm. mainly a singer. She's a super amazing singer. She was, like, the musical director of an acapella group in college. and Wow. Lots of good stuff. Yeah, she writes songs. She's awesome. It sounds like you guys are very close. We are. We're uh. best buds. That's great. Um, what yeah. was it like for you to have a sibling that was also musical and somebody else to sing with? And what's different about singing with family versus other people? Totally. I think that like my my sister and my mom and I and my dad too. But yeah, we all we all really love singing together. 
Um, and there is definitely a pretty special thing that happens when, especially I think the three women of the family sing together. Um, but it's really interesting because like, even though we do have a lot of like shared musical experiences, um, my sister's voice and my voice developed in pretty different directions. Cause like I went pretty far in the like folk direction and she was always really into like pop music and musical theater and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, it's funny. Like our, I think our singing styles are pretty different, but if you hear us talk, like people say all the time that they can't tell us apart on the phone. Um, but yeah, our singing styles have evolved in really different ways. But I think just because we have, you know, a certain like, there's a certain crazy, freaky sibling connection, um, mm. we are, we're able to to blend really well when we sing together. And it's yeah, there there is totally a special family thing. I mentioned this earlier, but um, your parents are music educators, and they would go to Maine fiddle camp. Would they all they would teach there? Mm -hmm. um, but you didn't want to go because you thought playing music was for old people. You said, yep. I liked it, but I didn't really see a place for myself in that. I just associated it with my parents' generation. I'm interested in like how you relate to representation. It totally resonates with me that you didn't think playing folk music was for you because you didn't see people that looked like you playing it. Yeah, um, totally. What, is, what has been your experience with identity and representation like that? It's something I think about all the time. It's just impossible to overestimate the importance of representation in in music and in, in all other areas. It's been studied that people feel more inclined to do something when they see someone who looks like them or who shares a certain identity or experience with them excelling in that area. I mean, I've seen that come up in so many ways throughout my life. I think the first thing was just like seeing young people in folk music. That was, you know, that was a really big turning point for me when I started seeing young people playing folk music. That was when I wanted to be part of that community myself on my own terms. And, you know, of course, this isn't something I have personal experience with, but you see it a lot with people of color in, in the folk world. In the last, you know, half century or whatever, like folk music has been perceived as a very white dominated, it is a white dominated area. A lot of people don't realize that that's very contrary to where folk music actually comes from. And there are so many amazing people now who are sort of reclaiming that heritage and making it visible again, as it rightfully should be. Um, I was just watching my friend Jake Blunt uh, do a live stream for his new album, which is focused on his interpretations of the Black string band tradition. You know, I admire people like Jake and, and Rhiannon get in so much for, for doing that. But my personal experience with representation has been, I've had a lot of really gratifying experiences where I have, I feel like I've been able to kind of, you know, be the role model that I didn't always have. It's insanely humbling and, and gratifying that I could be that for someone else. I've had gals come up to me and say, like, I've never seen a woman play guitar like that before and I'm not like an amazing guitarist like I'm good but like you know <laughs> it's just like the bar is so low sometimes it's really wild I I recently produced an album for Liv Green um and that was my first time acting as the the producer and you know obviously women producers are perhaps even more underrepresented than women guitarists and I'm glad to just be a, a small drop in the bucket uh, towards, you know, changing the balance. Camp was also the first time you saw young people innovating with their own musical ideas within a traditional music framework, which is like mm -hmm. basically what Lula Wiles' whole thing is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about what that realization was like for you as a young musician and why that practice is so important? Yeah. Um I think there's this weird thing that happens in the folk music world where people forget that innovation is literally what folk music is about. I see it perhaps most starkly in the bluegrass world where people just get so hung up on playing things exactly the way that Earl Scruggs or Bill Monroe played them. And it's like, you know that 
Earl Scruggs and Bill Monroe were inventing a new style of music, right? Like, the tradition will die if you don't innovate with it. If you don't keep moving it forward. Because that is perhaps truer to the actual spirit of the tradition. I think, I think preservation is important, too. I think it has to be both. And that isn't to say that, like, you know, all old people are trapped in the past and all young people are the forward-thinking innovators. There's a lot of a lot of great music all across that spectrum being made by people of all different ages. But I do think having age diversity in the traditional music world is a big part of keeping it, you know, feeling alive. Um, mm. And so when I went to Maine Fiddle Camp and met you know, young musicians who loved, like, pop music and rock music and also loved traditional fiddle tunes. Um, and you could hear that, you know, in their music, in the way they played and sang, um, and in the songs they were writing. That just made me feel like, oh, I, there's a way to combine all the different elements of my musical identity. It doesn't have to feel incongruous it doesn't have to feel like you can't, you can't meld these things together. There are no rules. There are no rules. You can literally do whatever you want. <laughs> Eleanor Buckland was on um, Basic Folk a while ago, and we talked about, like, I don't really understand the culture of these old main fiddle tunes. There's mm -hmm. like a legacy. Yeah. Um, like I read somewhere, you're like, Lissa Schneckenberger, who's this like amazing young fiddle player. Yeah. She taught us an old logging ballad. And I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> um, what did you learn about like when learning these fiddle tunes, you must have learned the history about them. Mm -hmm. But like also, what did you learn about how fiddle helped people um, express their main identity? So if you look at any, like, regional music tradition, you will see that a lot of a lot of traditional music serves very practical functions in people's day-to-day -day lives. Um, you know, there's there's an amazing, um, amazing musician who uh, I know from Maine Fiddle Camp. Um, and there's a, there's a ton of people in Maine doing this, but this guy, Bennett Konesny, um, was the first person who really got me hip to the concept of work songs. And there's, you know, logging ballads are a good example of this. Like there were these songs that, that people would sing both to like document what their work was like, and also songs that people would sing while working. You know, you hear those like sea shanties. A lot of those people would sing while they were working on ships when they had to do work kind of in tandem that involved like pulling ropes and things. I don't really know how it works. I don't, I've never worked on a ship. I don't know really what it's about. But I know that there are situations where you have to perform certain physical actions in tandem with each other. And so people would sing to kind of keep a rhythm while they were working. You hear that in field songs. People sing while they're working in the fields to kind of like keep their spirits up, but also to like keep a rhythm with, with what they're doing with their hands and their bodies. And that is so cool to me that music can serve that function too. And a lot of fiddle tunes, most fiddle tunes are dance tunes, you know, back before people had all of the modern varieties of entertainment that we had now, they would go to dances. And that was where people would meet up with their communities and, and hang out and have fun. And um, that's what a lot of those fiddle tunes were for. There's a really great community of uh, preserving those traditions in Maine. And Maine Fiddle Camp is, is a big part of that. And I just, I feel so lucky to know about it. It's such a cool little corner of the world. But it's also like, this is what everyone's life used to be like. I think it's cool that there are people who are so dedicated to keeping those traditions alive. So you met Molly Obamsawin and Eleanor Buckland, who are your bandmates in Lula Wiles at Fiddle Camp when yeah. you guys were like 10, 11, 12, little peanuts. So on top of meeting young people who play folk music, what was it like to connect with them? It was really cool. It was really cool. I kind of became friends with Ellie before I became friends with Molly. And Ellie and I met in Lissa Schneckenberger's fiddle class. And uh, two of the things that initially brought us together were we had the same favorite fiddle tune. Lissa went around the class and had everyone say what their favorite fiddle tune was. And Ellie and I both said Hull's Reel at the time. 
Uh, which I think we both learned off the Halali record by Laura Cortese, Lisa Schneckenberger, and Hanukkah Castle. Uh, a big influence on both of us. Um, and the other thing was Harry Potter. I remember us having a very intense discussion about Harry Potter, because I think one of the last Harry Potter books had just come out that summer. Fiddle Camp was such a great place to develop as a young musician because it's also like it's also just summer camp you know like we had all these opportunities to just like run around and be young little mischievous kiddos and you know (laughs) swim in the in the lake that is now more of a bog and you know sneak out of our cabins at night and and sing songs around the campfire and and play fiddle tunes and um it was just a really like organic atmosphere for like building those kinds of musical friendships. The first time that me and Ellie and Molly ever performed together was at Main Fiddle Camp. It was the three of us um, and my friend Lena Tulgren, who is Lena and I grew up together and they're now like an amazing indie rock singer songwriter. So it was just like a really it was a really great environment to get started in. And it's like totally not surprising to me at all when I think about like what that environment was like. It's like, oh yeah, of course, of course I started a band with people that I met there because we had this amazing foundation <laughs> um, to build I really, uh, I think you like this story too, the story of Molly's first memory of, of you talking to her. <laughs> Do you want to tell the story? So according to Molly, we were in the line, the lunch line at Main Fiddle Camp. And I was like a few people ahead of Molly in line. And she was talking to one of her other friends about the, like, big group sing around the campfire the previous night. And she was saying, like, oh, I I can't sing. And apparently I just turned around to her and I said, shut up, you can sing. Which is, like, such a fucking me thing to say. Yeah, I want to... So snarky yet also encouraging. Yeah, I, I was, like, wondering... Because you, you were like, I don't remember it, but it totally sounds like something I would say. What do you think that memory says about you? I think it says, I think that memory is like weirdly prophetic about like me and Molly's friendship. That just like we can be super like snippy and snarky with each other, but fundamentally very supportive and encouraging. I think that like I do really want to encourage other musicians, especially, you know, other women And I do really feel that, like, that anyone can be a musician if they want to. So I think, you know, me just being like, shut up, you can sing, was like, uh, (laughs) it was just like, kind of like a a stereotypically sort of obnoxious way for me to phrase it. But, you know, coming from a place of like wanting to encourage someone else to believe that they could make music. One more question about Main Fiddle Camp. Um, Mm -hmm. You said there's a spirit there where you're just making music that feels good to you, not music that you think will sell a lot of records. So being in Lula Wiles, a touring professional, NPR loved band, there can be a lot of pressure to like sell and market yourself. But how do you work to maintain that main fiddle camp spirit? (laughs) That's awesome. That's a great question. Um, I think a lot of it is about making music that feels right to us and true to what we want to express. And that's part of why I feel so grateful that we have been able to partner with Smithsonian Folkways as our record label because they are a nonprofit. And I think that ethos, they're really about making music that is expressive and that represents various voices of various people is is huge and you know not that there are like there are great for-profit record labels out there um but i think that you know as a band with pretty strong like anti-capitalist community-based values i just feel so lucky that we have a record label um whose number one goal is not making money and i think we're all pretty like you know, we we take our like artistic integrity uh, pretty seriously, and I can tell just by the you way know, you yeah, said we that. all want to make music, yeah, we all want to make music that feels like honest and expressive and authentic, and whatever those things mean, 
hard to define them, but I don't really care how many albums we sell if I don't love my own songs, mm. you know? In thinking about your lead guitar playing, I was wondering, mm -hmm. like, because it sounds like you were like, wouldn't it be funny if I took a guitar solo and then you didn't know <laughs> how to, you didn't know how to solo, but then you just like started doing it and, you know, practiced and got better and better. But like, what does that say about you as a musician? I'll tell you how I see it. And you can <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong. Yeah, tell me. Um, I see it as like another example of how you're like a pretty brave performer. I thank you for saying that. That's really nice. Um, yeah, I think that um, I don't know that I would say brave necessarily, but like maybe confident. Um, if if other people think I'm brave, I'll take it. That's great. Um, but a lot of it is, you know, I just like I had a lot of support early on, you know, you know, I, I, I wish that for everyone. And I, you know, I was already kind of starting to improvise on the fiddle, so I wasn't coming into it totally blind on the guitar. Like, I kind of had some general ideas about how to improvise, but I, like, physically didn't really know what I was doing on the guitar. Um, but, like, it was just when I started playing with Ellie. We started playing as a duo, and usually it was, like, one of us played guitar and one of us played fiddle. And then sometimes we started doing some two-guitar stuff, and I was like, haha, it would be funny if I tried to take a guitar solo. Um, and then I just, you know, I, I did it more and more and started getting good at it. And I think also a big part of that is, like, women tend to feel more confident when they're playing with other women I think that's why women often tend to start bands with each other because there isn't that weird kind of like gender dynamic thing where like all the guys have grown up seeing men shredding the guitar and so they've felt confident like working on that from a really young age and that is often not the case with women so like I, I experienced this so much at Berkeley where like my harmony four class. Um, I was the only girl. Hey, that's and... a high level harmony four. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was the highest level. <laughs> and I was the only girl in the class. And I just felt like, so I felt so scared a lot of the time that if I said something wrong, everyone else in the room would be like, Oh, yeah, of course, of course, the girl got it wrong. You know, and I would just feel this need to prove myself all the time. And you don't feel that when you're playing music with other women. You can just like, you can try things and get it wrong and experiment and learn um, without worrying about whether you're like doing a good job of representing the team. And mm -hmm. I think that plays out across so many different like identity groups that people of any marginalized identity group feel like they need to be extraordinary. They need to like represent the team as well as they possibly can. And um, that's a really kind of unfair standard to have. I've read a little bit about how like the complicated feelings that you have about like dressing up on stage and like just kind of like looking the way that you want, like what well, you should just be able to wear a sweatshirt on stage, but then we yeah. don't have to like wear makeup and dresses and stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that is a that is a debate that will never end. Yeah. But in <laughs> totally. thinking about how you look while performing, like the way that your band Lula Wiles dresses on stage actually speaks more than just like women looking good on stage like I see it as women dressing modern and hip in the same way that like you're modernizing the folk genre like continuing on mm -hmm. what Aoife O'Donovan, Laura Cortese, Hanukkah Castle, Lisha Schneckenberger like those ladies like were I mean Laura Cortese changed my life with fashion like we used to go shopping yeah. together and like that's her, awesome seeing her perform on stage and these like incredibly modern outfits while playing like a fiddle tune I was just yeah wow like <laughs> yeah this is this is like really something I think yeah yeah I just want to know how you feel about that like what intentionality do you see with Lula Wiles like yeah image? oh man this is this is something that I think about a lot and that that we've talked about a lot as a band and I was actually I was having a conversation with my parents about it recently my dad was sort of asking me about it because, you know, my dad is my dad is a feminist man and he he wants to think critically about these things, which is great. Um, 
it's really complicated. I've had some really good conversations with Molly specifically about this. Both of us sometimes feel like we don't want to dress super feminine on stage. Um, Like, I feel like there was a time when I was always wearing, like, floral print dresses and stuff like that, and now I don't really like wearing dresses or skirts on stage most of the time. I prefer pants or perhaps a nice jumpsuit from time to time. (laughs) But then we're also like, fuck, man, like, why, why do we feel that way? Does something feel like mismatched about a woman in a floral print dress like stepping on guitar pedals do you feel like you can't shred a solo in a floral print dress or does that really feel like oh no I just want to dress this way because it feels more true to me I will never know the answer to that question because <laughs> like there's you know there's no control group you can't really you can't really like look at your own ideas about like gender in a vacuum because a society a non-sexist society doesn't exist. (laughs) Um, So like, I don't know. I don't know what it is. And I I just try to keep interrogating those things within myself because like I like, I like to look good on stage. I sometimes, I I do sometimes wish that, you know, we didn't have to, but I, it sort of feels like, you know, you're, you're putting on your armor. You're getting into like, it helps me get in the zone when I feel like I'm wearing something that makes me feel like powerful. Um, do I feel like I have to wear pants and I can't dress feminine in order to be powerful? I don't know. And like, obviously pants can be feminine too. You know, there's just, there's so much, there's so much to it and it's so complicated. I try to find like a nice balance and really figure out like which things are for me and which things are, you know, which things I can reject because it just feels like I'm adhering to the societal pressure like I've decided I like wearing makeup but I usually don't like shaving right um makeup I do for me shaving I was doing because I felt like I had to and Mm. so I'm just mostly not doing that anymore right um are you good at are you good at listening to yourself when your subconscious is like "Mm, Isa I don't like this floral print Yeah, I think I'm getting better at it. And I think it's also, like, I'm trying to ask myself, like, why don't I like this? Like, do do I really want to wear makeup for me? Or do I want to wear it because, like, society rewards me for wearing it? Mm. Um, And, like... Also, you like also you just have to like be a person. Sometimes you just can't like you can't just like do the progressive thing one hundred and fifty percent of the time. Sometimes you're like, yeah. yeah, like I don't want I don't want someone to, I don't want someone to tell me I look tired, so I'm gonna wear makeup. Love that. It's my yeah. favorite. Thing <laughs> somebody says that. Oh All right, God. we're going out with a bang here. Um, I mm-hmm. wanted to talk to you about body image stuff. Woo! We talked about this off air for mm-hmm. a couple of seconds, and you yeah. introduced the idea of body neutrality to me, and I've been thinking about cool. it like ever since. And I yeah. wondered if you could talk about the evolution, if you're comfortable, talk about the mm-hmm. evolution of your relationship with your body And how do you think the body you have shaped, like, you as a human? Oh, boy. What a massive and fascinating question. Um, Yeah, no, I'm so glad you brought up the concept of body neutrality. I found an article, I somehow came across an article about this concept. I think it was in Man Repeller. Um, What? That was talking about the concept of body neutrality. Man Repeller is an amazing website. Um... (laughs) focusing on fashion, but also other things. Uh, And I didn't really realize until I read this article, I didn't really realize why like body positivity had kind of rubbed me the wrong way sometimes. I think it's a great concept, but like what body neutrality means to me is like, you don't always have to feel positive about your body. Like we can just not worry so much about bodies all the time. And that, like, attractiveness and, like, fitting into, you know, a, uh, you know, fitting into someone else's ideas about, like, how your body should be shaped and what size it should be 
is just like it doesn't have to be the the thing we all think about all the time and you don't have to feel positive about your body in order to like be good at what you do or be valued as someone who performs on stage for a living or did until recently haha it is unfortunately something you have to think about like I have had so many experiences where, like, I'll see a photo of myself taken in the middle of a show, and I'm like, oh my god, no. <laughs> um, and that's such a shitty feeling, because it shouldn't be about how you look. Um, but it is, because people look at you for your job. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, I'm not a, I'm not a small woman, uh, <laughs> and I'm someone who is... I'm medium-sized. I can find clothes that fit on my body in most stores. Mm. It just blows my mind that, like, I feel like I have such a complicated relationship with my body, and yet there are women who are bigger than me, you know, who can't find clothes that fit them in most stores, and I'm like, fuck, I feel like it's hard for me. It's so much harder for them. So I do want to, like, acknowledge that. Um, my bandmates are both smaller than me, and not that, like, not that, you know thin women can't have body image issues too but I just think it's like it's just fucking true that like the bigger you are the harder it is mm -hmm. um there have been times when like we go shopping at vintage stores when we're on tour and I'm just like yeah I'm just gonna just gonna wait over here I this store has nothing for me mm -hmm. um and I also have like pretty big boobs and that makes it hard to shop uh do you remember that store know, at the like, mall that was like five seven nine where, like, no. everything was, like, a size 5, 7, or 9. That's so dumb. Well, now there's that stupid store, Brandy Melville, where everything only comes in one size, and it's supposed to be one size fits most. I want to fucking burn that store to the ground. I hate it. <laughs> um, it's like, are you trying to give people eating disorders? Like, stop! Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to see bodies as neutral. Um, and I think that if you have big boobs, um, your body tends to be sexualized. Like, you know, I remember, like, when I was in high school, like, being, being told that, like, what I was wearing was inappropriate because you could see that I had big boobs. And I was like, look, my body is shaped like this 24-7. You know, like... I'm I'm not like there's nothing inherently sexual about a body and there's nothing inherently good or bad about having a body of any size and that's a hard thing to learn like I I try to do a lot of like thought experiments with myself when I'm like when I'm thinking about any kind of any kind of bias that I might have like if you were told there's this great music producer you know, this person is like a genius in their field. It doesn't have to, it doesn't even have to be a music producer. It could be like a neurosurgeon or whatever. If you're like, this person is a genius. They're so smart. Um, they're so good at what they do. They're so accomplished. And then the person who walks out is like a fat black woman. Are you surprised? <laughs> you know, like I try to ask myself questions like that all the time to just sort of really like dig into like, where I might still have biases. The thing that I always come back to is like, we all have biases and th those don't exist because we're bad people. Like we all grew up in a society that taught us to think this way. It's just like baked into everything, into mm -hmm. like advertisements and movies and TV. And um, and so we, we all have to kind of like deprogram our, our brains a little bit. And, like, that's the part that's our responsibility, but, like, the bias is, it's in the water. You can't avoid it. And it isn't your fault. What is your fault is, like, if you don't do anything about it. And I think yeah. my mom, <laughs> my mom really, like, my mom really raised me to be skeptical of advertisements in, in all ways. Mm. Um, I think that was really helpful for me in, like, in trying to develop, like, a healthy body image. And also just developing my general, like, anti-capitalist sentiments, that my mom was like, she she wanted us to like not watch TV with advertisements in it for a long time. And, you know, obviously when I was a kid, that was annoying because I wanted to watch like Nickelodeon, like all my friends. And she wanted us to just watch PBS. Um, <laughs> but as an adult, I'm really grateful for that because I think it, it did help develop a lot of 
uh, my attitudes about those things. Man, I will say that. I, I have well, so much more I can say on this. I know, but yeah, keep, keep <laughs> we'll, going. We'll have to do another podcast specifically about this. Yeah, because I have. Yeah. I have my own opinions and feelings. It's hard to like find somebody to like talk about this with because mm-hmm. I feel like um, a lot of my uh, approach to this for my life has been like, I just want someone, I just want to be like, oh, I'm so fat. And then I just want someone to be like, no, you're not. But mm-hmm. like really what I wanted somebody to say was like, it doesn't matter. You're still yeah. a good person and we love you. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And like I, that that is like right on. And like I think I just, I want people to be able to talk about bodies in a way that doesn't have to be sexual and doesn't have to be negative. Like, I can just be like, yeah, like, I'm a little chubby. Like, I have a belly that hangs out a little bit. And, like, mm. who fucking cares? <laughs> who cares? <laughs> I, I actually, I remember I was thinking about the movie School of Rock. And there's a weirdly, like, super body positive scene in that movie where, like, Jack Black plays the music teacher. And there's a young girl, a young black girl named Tamika, who wants to sing in the band. And she's a really good singer. And she says to him that, like, she doesn't want to sing in the show. And he says, why? And she says, I don't know, because I'm fat. And he doesn't say, you're not fat. He says, who cares? He was like, you know, when I get up on stage, people love me because I'm sexy and chubby. Have you ever heard of Aretha Franklin? Like, she's a big lady and people love her. I can basically, like, recite this movie verbatim because I've seen it so many times. Uh, it was, like, my favorite movie. I love um, <laughs> And I just remember watching that and being like, man, that's so cool. And, you know, if you look at if you look at the history of music, there have been so many, like, amazing big women who, like, Sister Rosetta Tharp, she's, like, a big black woman who was, like, one of the first rock and roll guitarists. She was super, super influential, and a lot of people don't don't know about her. Um, I think she was queer, too, which is, like, she's just the coolest. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, God, amazing. Yeah, and so, like, it's such a pervasive bias that still exists among people, and you know, just gotta like, not be afraid to dig into it. Yeah, I agree. It's just really great to talk to people about it. Because I feel like I've had, I've had so many conversations with people about this, where both of us are just like, yeah, oh my god, like, we can talk about this. Oh my god, yes, I experienced that too. Yeah. And people just feel so, so much shame. There's so much, there's so many topics like this in life that are like so taboo, Mm -hmm. Um, hearing about people who have miscarriages and then them, them talking to other people who have had miscarriages because it feels like you're the only person in the world that's ever experienced anything like that. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I think maybe the lesson here, Issa, is if we've learned anything (laughs) in our conversation is to talk about things that are uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so. Just throw it um, out there. Yeah. But but not with everyone. Not with everyone. Some people just can't can't handle it. Right. Right. And well, and you know, try to create create safe spaces for talking about these things. Totally. What we're gonna do now, Isa, mm-hmm. is something called the lightning round. Ooh, fun. Okay. Here we go. Lightning round. First song you learned on the guitar. Day Tripper by the Beatles. Batman or Superman? Batman. Karaoke song. Complicated by Avril Lavigne. Favorite radio station as a kid? 92.5 The River. In Massachusetts? Yeah, we got it. I was in very southern Maine. We got that station. Yeah. Nice. Dogs or cats or something else? Cats, but I don't subscribe to the dog-cat binary love that me neither but if i had to pick if i had to pick cats yeah (laughs) what is your coffee order cold brew black hardcore favorite u.s city brooklyn brooklyn new york slash south berwick maine 
I don't know. <laughs> First album you bought with your own money. <laughs> Metamorphosis by Hilary Duff. <laughs> it's just the truth. First concert. I have no idea. Probably one of my parents' concerts. Last book you read. Um, I'm currently reading Pleasure Activism by Adrian Marie Brown. Before that, I read The Secret History by Donna Tartt, which is amazing. Both of those books, amazing. Ooh. Dream collaboration. Ooh. Uh, I would love to work with Sam Amidon. Flying or invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? I guess Star Wars, but I don't really have a strong opinion on that. Lord of the Rings or Narnia? <gasps> Lord of the Rings. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Um, probably, probably Florence, Italy. Nice. Yeah. Is that the Celtic part of Italy? <laughs> Not to my knowledge. <laughs> to ask your dad. Yeah. Issa Burke, thank Although you so much. Although my mom would be, my mom would be the, my mom would be the Italy expert. Oh, in all right. Family. Well, yeah. You check with Susie. Yeah, I will. Thank you for having me. Thanks to our producers, Laura McCarthy and Adam Corey. Basic Boat produced by Laura this week. Also, thanks to our business manager, Lindsay Myers. Alex Stanton of Townspeople does our music. Basic Folk is proudly part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can find all sorts of show notes and details at my website, including links to uh, Isa and her Patreon. My website is cindyhouse.net. I uh, hope you liked what you heard, and if you did like what you heard and you're listening all the way to the end you must really like this podcast and in which case i'd appreciate it if you would tell a friend or uh subscribe rate and review and we'll talk to you next time okay bye <laughs>